this morning's sermon will make sense on its own. However, it's thematically related to last week's sermon on Philippians 3.8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, today will still make sense to you, but it will only enrich your understanding of today's message if you do go back and listen to the sermon from last week, which should be up on our website soon. I mentioned the connection between last week and this week now, but hold that thought because I'm not going to expand on the connection at the moment, but instead I'll circle back around to it at the end. Today we're looking at Hebrews 10.24, which I just read to you a moment ago, which says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And let me start by saying this. We really do need to be stirred up to love and good works, don't we? I know that I do, and I'm quite sure as well that you do also. All you have to do to realize that it's true that we, I, you, do need to be stirred up to love and good works. All you need to do to realize it's true is to think back on that familiar experience which you've had several times, many times I'm sure, where you have a thought to pray. You have a thought to listen to a sermon. You have a thought to check in on a brother or on a sister. You have a thought to follow up with an unbeliever that you had a chance to talk about the Lord with. But instead of doing these things, next thing you know, you find yourself turning on the TV or taking a nap or scrolling through your social media feed or working in the garden or whatever else. Our love for God is often cool and our love for our neighbors is often cool, which is why then our good works are few and far between. Because after all, there is a connection between love and good works. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Apostle John also instructs us, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So it's clear, if we love God, we will do good works that are in keeping with His commandments. And that involves loving other people too. Again, the Apostle instructs us, if anyone says, I love God, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Or 1 John 1, or pardon me, 1 John 4, 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, right, we extrapolate from that. If someone says, I know God, but they don't love, we say, no, you don't know God. Or Matthew 22, 36 to 39, someone asks Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first 
the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you see, you can't love God and not keep his commandments. Nor can you love God and keep his commandments without loving your neighbor. Because loving your neighbor is actually one of his commandments. And if you truly know, that is not just know about, but know personally, savingly, if you're in relationship with God, if you truly know the God who is love, then you will love naturally to some extent. For God is love. And whoever has been born of him will bear some family resemblance. So I hope you can see just from that sampling of verses that there is a connection between love and good works. In fact, when Jesus is speaking about what it will be like toward the end of all things, he says this in Matthew 24, verse 12. Lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. So again, the connection, right? That's showing it the opposite way. Where there is more love, there are more good works. Where there is less love, there are less good works. Just by way of definition, in explaining this connection a little more clearly and specifically, Good works are not just what whatsoever we feel like might be good, but our, our works done in accordance with God's law. In other words, we don't get to define what good works are. This is one of the errors of the early monastic movement, where men would, in an attempt to try to be holy, go move out into the desert and live maybe on the top of a tall tower or something in the burning hot sun, or put on underwear made of horsehair, thinking that these are good works which will bring them closer to God, right? So good works are not whatever we fancy, but good works are those works done in accordance with God's law, which God has prescribed, that's what makes them good. And so this is the connection, right? When we love God, we will keep his commandments. In other words, that's the same thing as saying we will do works which are good, namely works which he has commanded and prescribed. So I hope you can see this connection here. So, now, let's drill a little bit deeper. Love is the root, good works, the fruit. So when you truly have love in your heart towards God and neighbor, you do towards that. That is, you do towards God and neighbor the things that God's law instructs you to do towards that. In other words, when you truly love, you express that love in good works. So we need to be stirred up to love God and neighbor. And we need to be stirred up to work toward the good works which love requires or necessitates. If you love, then do these things. Wouldn't you appreciate people in your lives to do that for you, to stir you up to love God and neighbor? Wouldn't you appreciate people in your life to help equip you 
and encourage you in the expression of that love once it's there. To help equip and encourage you in the expression of that love towards God and neighbor. 1 Corinthians 15.33 gives us this principle. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20 says a similar thing, but adds the equal and opposite principle. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. We see from these passages and, and others like it and narrative in Scripture looking around us, observing in daily life, we see it's true that you tend to become like the people that you hang around. Some influence is inevitable. So wouldn't you love it if you had people in your life who were themselves full of love for God and neighbor, who influenced you also then to love God and neighbor? And to do good works towards them. Don't you see your need to be stirred up by other people towards love and good works? I sure do. I'm sure you can if you're being honest with your own heart. Now, since we know that it's true that we ourselves are in need of stirring up, then let us obey this explicit command that we read in Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us obey this explicit command, not only because it's an explicit command, and so we ought to, not only for its own sake then, but also because of the golden rule, which Jesus taught us. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you want people in your life to be a good influence on you, to stir you up to love and good works? If so, then be the kind of person that stirs up the people around you to love and good works. It's an outworking of this principle. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Again, you will influence others and you will be influenced by others as you spend time together. That's inevitable. You should choose your influences carefully then. This is a, an argument for good churchmanship, by the way. If a companion of fools suffers harm, but he who walks with the wise becomes wise, wise then by inference, what of the man who walks closely with God's people, who are themselves walking closely with God? What happens to him? Won't, by inference, won't good churchmanship have a healthy effect upon your spiritual life? Many have noted that the church is like a bunch of hot, glowing coals which are underneath a fire or left perhaps after the flames themselves die out but there's still the coals underneath the church is like a bunch of glowing hot coals which keep one another warm and glowing when one is removed it will tend to cool 
more quickly than the others on its own. So stay with the other coals. Get yourself in with the other coals. But I digress because this sermon is not really about the influence that others have on you, though that's true, but it's for another day. This sermon is about the influence that you have on others. So let's take the same concept then, and let me ask, what kind of coal are you? What is the effect that you have upon other coals? Are you the cooling coal that can't really warm up and ignite another coal? Well, first things first, get back on track, if that's you, with healthy spiritual disciplines. Prayer, Bible reading, as I was just saying, good churchmanship, etc. But, listen, aim, aim higher than merely recovering some warmth for your own sake. In other words, aim at not merely going from being a cooling coal to being a reasonably warm coal. Aim higher than that. Aim at a burning hot zeal. Aim at having a warm love for God and others, which results in good works and infectiously stirs up others to do the same. Aim at becoming so hot a coal that the other coals around you are helped. The will of God for your life, Christian, believer in Christ Jesus, the will of God for your life is not that you would be merely a reasonably faithful person who exists in an okay state. The will of God for your life Christian, is that you would yourself burn hotter and help others burn hotter. There's a hymn from the 70s called We Are God's People. And the author picks up on the coal idea and says, We die alone, for on its own each ember loses fire. Yet joined in one, the flame burns on to give warmth and light, and to inspire. To inspire. To stir up. To give warmth and light. To give warmth and light. Just before the author writes, we die alone, for on its own each ember loses fire. He writes, we are God's temple. The Spirit's dwelling place. Formed in great weakness. A cup to hold God's grace. Christians, that's what we are. In ourselves, nothing. Just vessels. Just cups to hold God's grace. But God's grace has been poured into us. And not merely so that we ourselves could be full, but so that we can in turn be instruments of pouring 
God's grace into other vessels. This is God's design for the church. Not merely, not merely, yes, but not merely, listen, not merely that we would be, each one of us, connected to God the way that the spokes of a bicycle wheel are connected to the hub, but not one another. Yes, we do individually go to God as empty vessels and get Him to pour grace into us. Yes, we do do that. But that is not merely what God has designed for the church. God has designed also that we would be instruments of pouring His grace into one another as each has need. That we would be an interdependent bunch. That we would be one body with many parts that work together and help and minister to one another and care for one another. To give warmth and light. Not just to take from one another warmth and light, but to give warmth and light. We die alone for on its own each ember loses fire. That means not only should you not leave the church and distance yourself and isolate your church from that warmth and light that you could get, but it also means that your brother or your sister is in danger of dying alone when he or she separates himself or herself from you, which presupposes that you are to be a means of giving warmth and light and maintaining warmth and light in that person. In another modern hymn, Oh, How Good It Is, we sing, Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn. For the weak find strength, the afflicted find grace, when we offer the blessing of belonging. Christians, we are to receive others into our fellowship in such a way that results in them being helped. There is to be a blessing of belonging to us. You belong to me, brother. You belong to me, sister. You belong to me, friend. That, and that is to be a blessing. Others are to be helped when we receive them into our fellowship. They are to find grace. They are to find strength. I ask you as individuals now, not corporately as the church, but you as an individual. Does belonging to you, being your brother, being your sister, does belonging to you, being your, your fellow church member, does it help others find strength? Does it help others find grace when you offer to them the blessing of belonging to you? That's what you should be aiming at. How, you might ask. Well, even the author of Hebrews suggests that we will need to give it some thought. Though we are to do it, we are not to do it haphazardly, without any thought. 
Consider, he says. Let us consider how we may stir up one another to love and good works. So give it some thought in your own life. And as I've been giving it some thought, I would suggest that there are three primary ways in which we can stir up one another to love and good works. The first is to set a godly example for one another. And you don't have to have a theology degree or even have attained to a certain level of sanctification to do this. Consider, brothers and sisters, the encouragement that even brand new Christians are. Though they don't know or understand very much at first, and perhaps even speak in theologically incorrect ways, when they simply hunger for the Word of God and fellowship with the saints and prayer, doesn't it create some warmth in your spirit, seasoned saint? To see the earnestness, the zeal, the passion of the new believer. Even though they don't have a lot of theology and they don't have a lot of sanctification and may still be beset with certain sins that they haven't yet cast off and shaken off, there is still a good example in them of the right kind of disposition towards the things of God. And so they're listening, they're paying attention, they're writing stuff down, they're thinking about it, they're making personal application, they're asking questions, they're receiving correction, they're not so uh, dignified yet that they're above asking simple questions. There's a childlikeness, right? And so they just come and they just ask you whatever and you think to yourself, it's kind of a silly question, but okay. You know, but there's just this sincerity, there's this this childlikeness, and doesn't it encourage you? Even if you've been walking with God for a while, right? you might say, well, okay, so much for new believers, but even if you've been walking with God for a while, and yet you don't think that you can offer anyone a godly example because you don't know enough theology or haven't attained to a level of sanctification that you should have by now, and you don't even have the excuse of being a new believer, you can still take a lesson from the new believer and set a godly example for the rest of us by being a sponge, soaking in everything you can, by showing us what real humility looks like to be able to say, you know what, I should have progressed more by now than I have, but now I'm seeing it and I want to grow. And I want to change. It's just humbling yourself to say, maybe I've, maybe I've been wrong. Maybe I've been stubborn. Maybe I've been too proud to ask for help where I don't understand something or where I can't overcome this certain sin. Give us an example. Even if you are a relatively unsanctified person without good theology. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, stir us up, the rest of us up to love and good works by showing us what a sincere earnest, zealous, humble disposition towards the things of God looks like. And maybe it will encourage the rest of us to drop the facade and begin a more earnest and zealous and sincere and earnest pursuit of God ourselves.
Consider also, brothers and sisters, the encouragement that suffering and struggling saints are. Those bearing up under chronic pain. Or those bearing up under a tough emotional situation in a godly way. Haven't you seen some people suffering or struggling and you wonder, how do they manage? And they tell you they're just leaning into God and trying to trust His promises. Even when they're struggling to do so, and even when they tell you as much, look, it doesn't feel, to me right now, it doesn't feel like God is good, but I'm just trying to trust it. I'm just trying to go by what I know instead of what I feel. I don't feel like I'm being a really good example right now, but I'm, I'm really trying to just put one foot in front of the other and just begging God to get me out of this darkness. They might not feel like they're being a good example to you, but that's actually exactly how you get through the valley. So they are being a good example to you. Struggling Christian, even if you're struggling through whatever, depression, anxiety, difficult emotional circumstances, uh, lots of stress, chronic pain, whatever, and you're struggling, and you're suffering, and you, you just don't feel victorious enough to set a godly example for the rest of us. Look, you can set a godly example for us before the battle's even won. Before you even get the victory, you can show us what it looks like to fight the good fight. To press on. To persist. To persevere. Tell us what you're doing to try to maintain your love for God. Even if you tell us, look, my love for God, I feel like has been cooling and waning. You know, but I'm really, I'm really trying. And here are some of the ways that I'm trying to cultivate my love for God. That helps us, you know. You don't have to always just testify to it was a breeze. You can testify to it's a, it's a really tough struggle right now. That helps us when it is that we come into the valley to know that, that we're not alone and that we should persevere in love and good works. And it helps us even in the meantime, even if we have smaller setbacks and obstacles than you at the moment, it still helps us persevere in whatever setbacks and obstacles we're facing because we can draw courage. And we're like, look at this brother, look at this sister. Yes, it's, it's not easy all the time. Yes, he is struggling, she is struggling. But look at how they're persevering in the midst of this. I can persevere too. So, so share that with us and set an example for us. And consider healthy brothers and sisters with good circumstances and lots of sound theology that you've acquired over the years. Consider what riches God has poured upon you. You don't have to be a new believer or unsanctified or suffering to set us a godly example either. Even if everything's going swimmingly for you, consider what riches God has poured out upon you. And will you now squander the wealth? Will you now hoard it? 
Will you now wander from God because now he's given you some ease? Like Israel of old, whom we read in Deuteronomy, grew fat and kicked. They follow God through the desert and then give up on him as soon as they get to the promised land. Christian with good circumstances, good health, lots of good sound theology, things are going well. Don't squander everything that God has poured out by now taking your foot off the gas and wandering and coasting and deviating and drifting. Or will you keep to yourself all that you've learned through those years of struggle? Because you used to be in that struggling place. You used to be in that unsanctified place. And now you've gotten into a more comfortable phase. And so you just can't be bothered now to go back and enter back into the suffering of someone else. And help bring them along. How selfish. We have that that saying, right? He forgot where he came from or she forgot where she came from. And usually we mean when somebody grew up poor and then they get riches and then they don't help, you know. But it's the same kind of thing. So you struggle all these years through sanctification issues and you struggle all these years through theological questions and doubts and difficulties. And all of a sudden now you get to a place where the Lord has taught you some things and given you some victories over some sins and now you, you feel like by God's grace, your life, you're able to manage and cope in the spiritual life a little bit better. And you're not, you don't just feel like you're always dying the way you used to. But now you're like, oh, I'm not going back there. Look, there, we got to be like, we got to be like an army with some sense of loyalty to wounded soldiers to go back and get them and extract them. Even if you have reached kind of a safe place, you got to go back in the jungle, you know, and grab someone and throw them over your shoulder and bring them out. If you're in a good place, bless God. Thank God for how grace has brought you safe thus far. But now you need to go back and be an instrument of God's grace in bringing someone else safe thus far. So... Set us a godly example, brother. Set us a godly example, sister, in good circumstances, at a level of maturity, at a level of stability and health. Set us a godly example by inviting others to taste of your bounty. Invite people into your ease in whatever ways you can as something of a respite from their difficult circumstances. Practice hospitality. Give a monetary gift. Use your extra time to serve the family of God by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus as you run the race. Not like the tortoise, or pardon me, not like the hare in the famous tortoise and the hare story who got so far ahead that he decided to take a nap. As you're winning the race of life and you're getting there, and you've really seen some progress and you're, you're far ahead of where maybe some other people are. Don't go to sleep on us. Don't take a nap. As you're winning the race of life from an earthly perspective, show us what it looks like to maintain a spiritual focus in those good years, in that ease, in that prosperity, in that maturity. Show us what it looks like to keep your foot on the gas and keep running with endurance that race set before you. Show us what it looks like to keep your eyes on Jesus and finish strong. 
show us what it looks like to have a heart for God in the midst of earthly prosperity and in the midst of spiritual prosperity. If you're doing well, show us what it looks like to be a godly Christian in the midst of those circumstances. To him whom much is given, much will be required. So that's the first way we can stir up others to love and good works, by example. The second is this, through words. I was reminded this week, reading through Watchfulness by Brian Hedges with a brother and friend, of the importance of speaking to one another within the church as we try to help one another follow Jesus better, as we try to stir up one another, in other words, to love and good works. Hedges quotes Thomas Watson as follows. Christians, when they meet together, should use holy conference, which is an ancient way of saying holy conversation. Christians, when they meet together, should use holy conversation. Have you not matter enough in the word to furnish you with something to say? Let me suggest a few things to you, Watson says. When you meet, speak to one another of the promises. No honey is so sweet as that which drips from a promise. The promises are the support of faith, the springs of joy, and the saints' royal charter, as in charter of rights and freedoms kind of thing, right? Are you citizens of heaven? And yet do not speak of your royal charter, that which you are entitled to, that which is your right. Speak, Watson goes on, of the preciousness of Christ. He is all beauty and love. He has laid down his blood as the price of your redemption. If I might pause there. I think of that phrase, he has laid down his blood as the price of your redemption. The way you put money on the counter. You go shopping and you lay down a hundred dollar bill as the price of whatever goods you're taking in. Christ has laid down his blood as the price of your redemption. Have you a friend who has redeemed you and yet you never speak of him? Speak to one another of sin, Watson goes on. What a deadly evil it is. Speak of the beauty of holiness, which is the soul's embroidery. Again, if I might pause there, something like Joseph's coat of many colors. This is, this is your adornment here. Speak to one another of the beauty of holiness, which is the soul's embroidery, that which God weaves in you and upon you, filling it, the soul that is, with such splendor as makes God and angels fall in love with it. Watson says, speak to one another of your souls. Inquire whether they are in health. The old Methodist churches, when they, they first started, there was a question that they were regularly to ask one another. Brother, sister, how is it with your soul? 
We don't have to say it in such archaic terms, but those questions, that question should not be irregularly, infrequently asked among us as we endeavor to stir one another up to love and good works. And one more here, Watson says, speak about death and eternity. Can you belong to heaven and not speak of your country? To my shame, other than maybe like theological discourses, like, like preaching or something like this, I've probably spoken about Canada more than I've spoken about heaven in the last three years. Just in casual conversation. I miss it. I want to go visit. I want to be there. Why doesn't, that, why doesn't heaven just come up like that, right? Brothers and sisters, we may and we must use words. Not just godly example, but also words. As they have great effect as we try to stir up one another to love and good works. Proverbs 25 11 tells us a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in the setting of silver. Don't neglect to talk about spiritual things as you seek to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the second way. The first way was God the example. The second way is words. The third way in which we can stir up one another to love and good works is simply to pray together or even to pray for one another in the presence of one another. In my experience, it's been a great help to be around brothers and sisters who regularly suggest that we have a word of prayer. We could use verses like pray without ceasing to ground this application, but I don't think any of us who are Christians would dispute that praying together or praying for one another in the presence of one another will help us. We'll, we'll stir up stir us up to love and good works. When you are around a prayerful person, it's a help to you. It really is. So seek to be a prayerful person around others then. Again, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I don't know if any of you remember, but at one point, uh, we were... I think, it was, I think it was before COVID and we were meeting in person at my house and it was for community group and we were just kind of chit-chatting but then the conversation kind of turned spiritual and we just started talking and at one point one of my sons piped up shouldn't we open with a word of prayer? <laughs> Which is funny because he's obviously just parroting what he regularly hears but that little reminder doesn't it turn us heavenward though? When our little children remind us, hey, Daddy, aren't we going to do family worship tonight? How can I say no? So, if we realize the effect that it has on us, again, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Suggest, when you're with other Christians, a time of prayer together. If you practice hospitality, perhaps after dinner, say, I just thought we could spend a few minutes praying together before you go home and just take even take five minutes just go around the table and let each one briefly speak a word of prayer to the Lord doesn't that edify you doesn't that strengthen you so do it to others perhaps it may be a little awkward but take the initiative as awkward as it might be 
in some sense, when you're around other true Christians, everybody kind of feels a little bit awkward, maybe, to suggest a time of prayer. But they also kind of hope that it would happen. The way that like maybe two young sweethearts are afraid to be the first one to reach for the other's hand. But each would find a warm reception if he tried or she tried first. It's often that way when we're with other Christians and there's that hesitancy to kind of shift towards spiritual things. Where there is a regenerate heart, there is some kind of reception towards spiritual things. And so when you're in the company of saints, you'll rarely find an utterly unwilling group. Though perhaps at times people will agree reluctantly simply because they're ashamed to say no. Perhaps they're tired. Perhaps they're not in a spiritual frame of mind for whatever reason. Perhaps they don't really want to, but they're too ashamed to tell you no, that's not right. Through the awkwardness, through the reluctance, if you go ahead and do it and have some prayer time together, it's never been my experience nor the experience of anyone I've spoken to that you regret it. It always does you some good. And very often you have that feeling like we've all had where maybe you don't want to go to church, but you go and then afterward you say, I'm glad I went. It was helpful to my soul. It's very often like that with a shared time of prayer. Maybe someone suggests it. Nobody's really brazen enough to say no, but there is some reluctance. Nevertheless, you go ahead and do it and everybody finds it was, glad, it was good that we did it. I'm glad that we did it. It was nice to spend some time in prayer together. Perhaps at times someone may be actually unwilling to pray for whatever reason. And this can happen maybe in a time of great emotional upheaval of some sort. A genuine brother or sister says, I, I really just can't bring myself to pray. I don't want to pray right now. Something like this. Well, just let me, let me pray for you then, brother. Or let me pray for you then, sister. And just bring them before the throne of grace. And plead those sweet and precious promises from which the finest honey drips on behalf of this struggling son. Don't preach at them. Intercede for them. Bring them before the Father who loves them even more than you do. Speak of the sweetness of Christ and the, the compassion of Christ, the benevolence of Christ, the, the richness and fullness of Christ to bestow all of the blessings of his covenant upon this struggling brother or sister. This is another simple way to help other pilgrims on the journey. So those are three ways as I consider how we might stir up one another to love and good works. Perhaps you would add to that list. Perhaps you say, well, there, I wish you would speak of a fourth one because it's so obvious. Well, it wasn't so obvious to me, but you could stir me up to love and good works by sharing it with me another time. You might find other ones. You might think to yourself, oh, here's another good way to do it. You might, you might find... Uh, certain practices effective in certain circumstances and not in others. Consider, consider how you might stir up 
one another to love and good works. Those are three that I share as I consider. I told you at the beginning that I would circle back around to the connection between last week's message and this one. Here it is. If it really is of more value, of surpassing worth, to know Christ Jesus. If it is more, most valuable to know Christ Jesus, of surpassing worth to know Christ Jesus, more value than anything else, then not only should we be seeking ourselves to know Christ above all, but love demands that we should be seeking above all to help others also know Christ. And not just to know Christ adequately, enough to be barely saved, but as we talked about last week, to know Christ in His fullness. Until we have a experience of the richness and the fullness of Christ Jesus, and until they do, until, until we've exhausted the plenitude of that cornucopia, which is Jesus Christ and the blessings of His coming, until we've exhausted that, would it be our aim to know Christ and to help others know Christ more and more? If that is really of surpassing worth, and it, it applies not only to ourselves, but the way that we relate to others and what our overarching aim is when interacting with others. We were utterly lost. We were ruined by the fall. Adam plunged us into both guilt and corruption. We were, we found ourselves living in a broken world. We found ourselves living in, in a world where things fall apart and things decay. We found ourselves living in a world where loved ones die. We found ourselves living in a world where the, the seeds of this death and destruction are latent even within ourselves. And not merely our bodies, but also our souls. Corrupt. Trending towards death and destruction. We were <clears throat> living our best life now. in that broken world. That was as good as it was ever going to get for us. Burying our loved ones six feet under, we were living our best life now. Feeling our bodies come apart, we were living our best life now. Watching the devastating effects of earthquakes and tsunamis and that kind of thing, forest fires, we were living our best life now. Amidst all of the brokenness of the world, that was really as good as it was going to get for us. Because then hereafter, we were on our way to hell. And so the devastation that Adam brought into the human race by his sin was actually, nevertheless, the high watermark from that point forward in terms of how good things were ever going to get for us. See how negative that is? How desperate that is? How barren that is? That there really was no hope 
Just eat and drink. Get whatever pleasure you can out of this life in the midst of all the corruption and decay. Because tomorrow we die, and if I might add, and go to hell. Pretty bleak. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, the scripture tells us that we were loved with an everlasting love. So even at this time when Adam plunged the human race into sin, plans had already been made for a second Adam to come. We sang earlier, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. And you see, it's in Christ Jesus that we find our sins atoned for, our guilt taken away, that we find ourselves clothed with a righteousness that we never could have mustered up in ourselves. And so we find acceptance with God. Though God stopped walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden after they sinned, we find that we come into this new relationship with God where we have communion with Him now, access to His throne of grace in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. And we are promised that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God shall again be with men. And so this is now our lot. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In the midst of this brokenness and in the midst of this corruption, there is goodness and there is mercy following me around because of Christ Jesus. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we really believe this, If we actually believe this, this is the best news. This is literally the most important thing. Remember we talked last week about ultimate math? Never mind trigonometry, algebra, calculus. Fail it all. Just get your ultimate math right. This is the most important thing. To know Christ. And not only is it the most important thing for us, but it's the most important thing for everyone else. Surely, if the gospel is true, then those who claim to believe it should themselves be a Christ-word people, seeking themselves to know Christ Jesus. But if the gospel is true, then those who claim to believe it should also be a Christian-word people, moving towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking that the grace of Christ might be poured out through them upon their brothers and sisters. That we might be instruments in God's hands, means as He has appointed us to be of helping one another know Christ more fully, more deeply. Surely if the gospel is true, we can embrace this role, this task we've been given by God to minister to one another. So we should be not only a Christ-word people, if the gospel is true, but a Christian-word people. And we should be a lost world-word people. If the gospel is true, not only should we be Christ-word, ourselves seeking to know Christ, 
Not only should we be helping our fellow Christians know the fullness and the depth, right? As Paul says in that prayer in Ephesians, the height and the depth, the length and the breadth, and to know the love of Christ. Not only should we be helping our brothers and sisters experience the height and the depth and the length and the breadth, but also we should be moving towards a world which doesn't yet know Christ in any meaningful sense. Perhaps they know about him, but there is no vital relationship. There is no connection of a vine to a branch. There is no, they draw no life-giving succor from Christ. There has been no clothing with righteousness of them. There has been no propitiating of wrath away from them. There has been no reconciliation to God with respect to them. If the gospel is true, not only should we be Christ word and Christian word, but we should be lost world word. Testifying of Christ. Testifying of his riches, of his fullness, of his covenant. Speaking to unbelievers of his gospel. This is what the church really should be. A Christ word people, a Christian word people, and a lost world word people. If we were full of love and good works, full of love and good works, overflowing, bounteous, that's what we'd be doing. That's the bar that God wants us to aim at, to be those kind of people. So again, what kind of coal are you? Hopefully not outside the fire, cooling. That's very far from what God wants you to be. Hopefully at least among the other coals. But aim, by God's grace yourself, to get hot with love for God and neighbor, with good works, so that you can be a giver of warmth and light, an inspirer in the words of that old hymn, so that you can be one who not only is stirred up by others, but one who is doing some stirring of your own. Aim at that, Christian, because as we do it together, that's when the church will really be doing and being what we ought to be. A Christ-word people, a Christian-word people, and a lost world word people.